study through the letter of 1 Timothy, and just last week we finished chapter 4, and so we're moving into chapter 5. So I'm going to begin reading in in verse 1, and we're going to read all the way to verse 8 this morning. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Would you pray with me? Father, in the mystery of Your providence, You fulfilled the promises and plans that You had been working out from the very beginning to send Your Son into the world to save and to cleanse a people from their sin for Your glory and to make them a new family to populate the new earth that You are bringing in. Father, You have called us into Your church. Not to be disconnected individuals, but to be a new family. You have adopted us into this family by Your free grace and mercy. And Lord, we pray that You would help us to see the body of Christ like this. Like the way You see it. That we would not be shaped by the culture. That we would not be shaped by the church culture that we have seen for so long. Lord, that we would be a people who bear witness to the future kingdom to come. Where all nations and all tribes will worship You together as one family under one head, our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that You would open up our hearts this morning and illuminate us by Your Spirit to understand these things. And We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we have made our way through 1 Timothy and even Ephesians before that, one of the major themes we have seen is 
is that the church is a family. When Paul gives instructions to Timothy, and then by extension to the Ephesian church that he is shepherding, he instructs him with the language of the family. So in the very beginning, in his opening greeting in chapter 1, when he greets Timothy, he says that this letter is to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Paul is Timothy's father, in a sense, and Timothy his child. Moving into chapter 2, he gives instructions about leadership within the church, and he grounds this leadership within the structure of the family that God has created. So he addresses, to begin, qualified men. And he says that these qualified men are to lead the church in prayer and in teaching. That's the same thing that is supposed to be taking place within the home and within the family structure. That the husband is to lead his family in prayers and in teaching his children and his wife the doctrines of the Gospel of Christ. Women, he says, are to adorn themselves with good works and are called to learn the faith from the leaders within the church. And this is not simply so that they will increase in their knowledge, simply in their head knowledge of the faith, but this is so that they might be equipped for the special ministries that they have been called to. They are to learn the faith and to be equipped so that they in particular might teach other women the faith as well as children. And you see this laid out in Titus chapter 2. This is where the Titus 2 fellowship comes from. Older women teaching younger women the faith. And they are also to be equipped with this learning so that they might model Christ-like Service. Women in the church in particular are to be a people who model good works and charity and benevolence and hospitality. You'll remember from chapter 2 as well that when Paul gives these teachings about leadership within the church and he addresses males and females in particular, he grounds all of these instructions in the story of Adam and Eve in the very beginning. So all of these instructions are grounded in the first family that was made. Moving into chapter 3, Paul gives instructions about the qualifications of elders and deacons. And we saw there that the overarching qualification, what all of these particular qualifications could be summed up as, is that an elder and a deacon must be a good family man. That is assuming, of course, that he is married and has children, but if that is the case, they must be good family men. You see there that both elders and deacons are called to be husbands of one wife, one Woman, men, they are to be faithful and loyal to their spouses, and they must also manage their own households well. So that includes things like finances, for example, and the raising of children. They are to manage their households well. And then in chapter 4, Paul has an emphasis there on addressing the false teaching that's within the church. But one of the primary problems that, that was was present with the false teaching 
was that the, there was a distortion of the family. So these false teachers that were not only teaching a gospel that was contrary to the gospel Paul had preached, they were not only adding things like works and asceticism that you must do these particular things, you must be completely obedient to the law in order to be righteous before God, but in their asceticism and in their pursuit of works righteousness, they distorted the family. They taught things like you should abstain from certain foods as well as refrain from things like marriage. They had a distorted view of marriage, a distorted view of sexuality. And so Paul commands Timothy, you have to confront this issue because the church is to model a good family environment. And that was being distorted. Now we come to chapter 5 and the same theme is present. The church is a family. It's not a business. It's not a corporation. It's not a club. It's not a concert. It's not even a loose affiliation of Christians who share the same beliefs. It's a family who because of the work of the Spirit of God, sealing them all with that Spirit, working within them all to make them image bearers of Christ, this same Spirit has also united them together and made them a part of the family of God. Now this theme of the family with the church, it really shouldn't come as a surprise for us. It should be something that we expect if we're thinking about the church rightly because God is the maker of the church and God is also the maker of the family. You see that in the very beginning in Genesis 1. This is is the beginning part of God's works. He creates the heavens and the earth and then as the climax of His creation, He makes male and female both in the image of God. God. And when he saw that Adam was alone, you'll remember that he said, this is not good. He needs a wife. It is not good for the man to be alone. And so he makes the woman out of Adam and he brings them together. And Moses gives us this commentary and he says that a husband shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his Wife. God is the creator and designer of the family, and this is built within His very creation. So it ought not to be a surprise for us that when He makes a new people of God, He speaks of this new people as a family and His own family. When God reveals Himself to us, especially in the person of Jesus, and we see more about who God is, that He is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, notice that the way He reveals Himself is by using the language of the family. Jesus calls us to pray to God as our Father. And we serve and worship and love Jesus not only as our King, but as our brother. He is the Son of God. When the Lord created the Israelite people, 
And their creation was essentially the time of the Exodus. Before they were not a people, they were simply slaves within the land of Egypt, but God, by His power and outstretched arm, rescues them, brings them out of Egypt, and creates this new people and brings them into the promised land. When He does this and makes the Israelites His people, He refers to them as His sons. And when He saves us as well, through the Gospel, through the blood of Christ, and gives us the Spirit of God, one of the most glorious truths of the Gospel is that He adopts us. We were not a part of His family before Jesus. And we had no right and no obligation to become a part of that family. He made us a part of that family by giving us His Spirit. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 14-16, to For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That is what the church fundamentally is. A people who were once divided by cultural, ethnic, racial, generational, and religious barriers now united into one family with God as their head. We all have the same Father. We all worship the same Son. And we are all sealed with the same Spirit. Friends, that is a truth that is vitally important. The reason we love one another, the reason we serve one another is because God is doing the same work in all of us with the same Spirit. Now, within every healthy family, there are rules. And these rules are not meant to be restraining or oppressive in any way, but rather freeing. They are rules that are meant to foster peace and harmony within the home. With smaller children, rules should teach simple concepts like obedience and authority. It would not be the smartest thing to pull your children aside, especially your small children, and to have a conversation with them about philosophy and metaphysics and some abstract concepts that even most adults struggle to understand. But simple concepts like obedience and authority, any child can understand. They understand yes and no. They understand that if you break this rule, there will be consequences for that. And when these rules are put in place, these rules are not meant to devalue or oppress children in any way, but to teach them and to create a peaceful home. So you have to think, right? Children are emotional roller coasters. In one minute, they can be extremely happy that you are bringing them a bowl of cereal. 
in the next minute, they can be extremely sad that that cereal has milk in it. And they can go from one extreme to the next. That is a true story. If children who are like that and who are all over the map are allowed to dictate the direction of the family, you recognize that there's only going to be chaos within the home. There has to be boundaries. There has to be rules that, again, are not oppressive but are actually making for peace within the home. Well, it's the same thing in the family of God. It's the same thing. God has given us rules, and these rules give order to our lives together as a body of Christ. They protect us from the influences of sin. They instruct us in the wisdom and the ways of God. We as a people are very much like little children in the family of God. A little child can think it amusing and interesting to take a bucket of water and to begin to pour that bucket of water into an electric outlet. Again, true story. Adults would look at that as something that's rather foolish. Why would you take a bucket of water and pour it into a live electric socket? But it does happen. Well, we as the people of God are very much like those little children. We find things like sin to be interesting and to amusing and amusing. We like to test the boundaries. We like to get as close as we can to what is sinful and to test the boundaries thinking that it might be okay. And we never recognize the reality that if we give in to sin, there will be destruction and consequences and pain that follows. And so God, as a good Father, gives us rules. It's His way of speaking to us as a father to small children. And these rules address all different aspects of life in His family. But this morning we're going to see rules that teach us how we ought to relate to one another in this family. Particularly how we relate to one another. In chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, Paul is continuing to give instructions to Timothy on how to minister to the people of God. He concluded chapter 4 with a charge to Timothy to keep a close watch on his own life and on his teaching in order to facilitate the salvation of His hearers, as well as His own salvation. And now He tells him the manner in which this should be carried out. How do you go about ministering to these different kinds of people, Timothy? And it's important as well that we remember that this letter that Paul writes to Timothy, that it was written specifically to Timothy, was also a letter that was read publicly. So as Timothy would have read this letter publicly, the church as well is hearing this letter read and is also receiving instructions about these very things. So Paul is giving instructions directly to Timothy and through Timothy as well to the church. And what Paul teaches the church here, beginning in chapter 5, 
is that a basic ethic of honor and respect should characterize the relationships in the family of God. That we honor one another and respect one another. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. This passage obviously gives instructions for how the church should care for widows, but that also extends all the way to verse 16. And so next week we'll look in more detail about widows and particularly the poor among the church because that's what the widows are. They're in a very similar category as the orphans. They are the needy among the church. And so how does the church take care of those in need within them? We'll look more at that next week. But this morning we're going to focus on how we are to relate to one another with honor and respect. Now, Paul begins by telling Timothy how to honor different generations of people within the church in verses 1 and 2. There's four different groups. Older men, younger men, older women, and younger women. He says, beginning in verse 1, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, Younger women as sisters in all purity. So to begin, he says, do not rebuke an older man. Now the word here for rebuke has an idea of striking at. It's a harsh rebuke. It's a correction that comes with anger or annoyance. There's there's certainly a, a matter of someone's blood beginning to boil when they offer this correction. And so, for example, there's an ancient historian named Josephus. He was, a, he was a Jewish historian, contemporary with the time of Jesus and the other apostles, who, who gave us a lot of very insightful history about the things that were going on during that time, as well as things that we see taking place in the book of Acts. And Josephus, in, in one of his books, records the time when Herod Agrippa was worshipped by the people of Tyre and Sidon. There was an occasion when Agrippa came before all of these people to give them a speech. And you can actually read about this very account in Acts chapter 12. So Agrippa comes and he gives this speech before the people. And while he was speaking, the people began to shout at him, the voice of a God! The voice of a God and not a man. And Josephus, when he records this event, he comments about it. And he says, upon this, the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. Josephus was suggesting that the king should not have tolerated one second of that worship. He should have realized that there were going to be real consequences if he made himself out to be a god. And we see when we read the account in Acts chapter 12, there were consequences. He did not rebuke the people. There was no sharp correction. Rather, he received the worship of the people and we are told that an angel of the Lord struck him dead. You see it in Acts 12? Josephus records the same event as well. 
he should have rebuked him with a sharp rebuke and a denunciation of their worship. Well, that's the sense of the word here for Timothy when Paul is saying, do not rebuke an older man. But notice again that he says, for an older man, you don't rebuke them in that way. You don't speak to them in that way. Now remember, as we've been going through 1 Timothy, Paul has made it a very important point that Timothy has to correct false teaching in the church. It has permeated the church. Leaders have been raised up within the church that are teaching destructive heresies that are leading people to completely abandon the faith. And Timothy is called to confront them and to correct them. But we've also seen as well that Timothy, at least in relation to many of the people in the church, was younger. He was not an older man, but was younger. And yet he's given this task to correct even those who may be older. So Paul isn't suggesting here that they shouldn't ultimately be corrected. What he's saying to Timothy is that when you do it, you should do it in a certain manner. You should do it in a way that shows honor to the older man even if this older man may be a heretic leading people to hell. You honor that older man by virtue of his age. You should correct, exhort, and encourage an older man as you would a father. Think about the gravity that comes with having to correct your own father. Ideally, that should never happen. But there are occasions where it may indeed be something that is called for. God has not designed the family for the son to be correcting the father on a regular basis. But again, sometimes it may be called for. And if that's the case, how would you do that wisely? You wouldn't go to your father with guns slinging. You wouldn't get in his face and say, you are completely wrong and you should be ashamed of what you're doing. No, he's your father. There's a gravity to this situation. And if you were to do that, you would probably preface your correction with lots of kindness and love and words of respect. You would say to your father, Dad, I love you. You are my father. You have raised me. You have taken care of me. You have fed me. You are my father. But in this particular instance, I cannot help but think you are wrong. And imagine even when you say to your own father, I think you're wrong. There's a weightiness to that very reality. Well, that's the kind of respect that should be given to an older man, Paul says. Even in the instance of correcting them, there should be a profound level of honor and respect. Leviticus 19, verse 32 says, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man and you shall fear your God. 
You encourage an older man as fathers. Paul goes on to say of younger men, you encourage the younger men as brothers. Which is to say, younger men are treated as equals. As your own brother. Older men should be honored and respected. And even by the younger men, right, there should be a Uh, in some sense, a recognition that they are not equal to the older men. They they may be equal in nature. We are all humans. We are all given the same rights by God. But there is a a difference in equality when it comes to matters of authority. If I was to stand before the President of the United States of America, we are equal by virtue of us being human beings. But I am not equal to the President in the fact that he has a greater authority over me as well as the nation. Well, it's the same thing with an older man and younger man. Younger men recognize that there is not an equality there between them in matters of authority. But that does not then give the older man permission to treat younger ones as inferiors. They are equals together. Notice that it's really the obligation of the older person to bridge the generation gap. Younger men shouldn't think of themselves as complete equals to older men. There's an honor they give to the aged by virtue of their age. But it's older men who are called, in a sense, to come down to the level of the younger and treat them as equals. A father comes down to the level of his younger children not by disregarding children's books as too simplistic and choosing rather to read to them Plato's Republic. No, he picks up a children's book. right, And he reads a children's book to them with joy. He treats his children as equals. Older people speaking directly to you, you have a very special call to disciple the next generation. That is something that is uniquely given to you. And that doesn't happen by completely disregarding their world and their interests and their culture as superficial or childish. They live in a world of social media. Many of them are concerned about social injustices. So in order to minister to them, in order to minister to a younger generation, it's important for you to enter into that world with them and bring the wisdom that you have from many years into that context. I know many of you have already done this, but this is my way of encouraging you to embrace things like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Enter into the world of the younger generation so that you as well can minister to them. Treat the younger generation as equals. Paul goes on to say as well that older women should be treated as mothers. We all know what it means to love your mother. This doesn't need much elaboration. You care for her. You pray for her. You treat her with respect. 
You allow her to indulge herself on her grandkids. You love your mother. And with older women, you treat them as mothers. And then he says, finally, you encourage younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, this is the only group out of all of these. This is the only group of people where Paul adds another qualifier. He stresses to Timothy that your dealings, Timothy, with younger women should be in all purity. The Bible is not unclear about temptations of lust for men. It doesn't mean that there's no temptations of lust for women, but it is indeed a death trap and a warning to all men throughout the Word of God. All throughout the book of Proverbs, for example, the warning over and over that Solomon gives to his son is a warning to avoid adultery. He knows his son is a physical creature. He knows his son can have his eyes lured by a prostitute and an adulterous woman luring him into adultery. And all throughout Proverbs, and especially in the beginning chapters, chapters 1-10, to the warning is given over and over to guard your eyes from the adulterous woman. Jesus Himself, when He was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, gives a profound warning against lust. It says, if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it out. Throw it away. It's better for you to enter into heaven with one eye than to lose your whole body in hell. Lust is a very profound and deadly and regular temptation, especially for young men. Even within the early church, after the apostles had died and new leaders had been raised up, one in particular's name was Polycarp. And Polycarp wrote a letter to the church of Philippi, and in that letter he addressed younger men as well. And he said that the younger men must be blameless in all things. They should be concerned about purity above all. Now, I don't have the exact numbers or statistics to back this up exactly. But I would venture to say, and I would imagine that it would probably be right, that the number one thing that disqualifies men from the ministry is adultery. The number one thing that prohibits them from either entering the ministry or continuing on is adultery. Sometimes you hear of matters like greed, but more often when a pastor falls, it is because of adultery. And I don't think that it's because those pastors were weaker than others in any way. I don't think that there was something within them in particular that led them down that path. More often than not, what happens is that they have placed themselves in a compromising position. 
They have put themselves in a private meeting with a younger woman. And hearts have been opened up together and it continues down the path until adultery is the end. A good rule of thumb to keep in mind because the Bible stresses this over and over, the importance of purity. And this is not only for pastors, but for you in the workplace as well. A good rule of thumb is not to put yourself, not to place yourself in a position where you're meeting someone from the opposite sex who's not your spouse privately. That's just a good rule of thumb. As a pastor, I would not have a counseling session with a young woman alone. There would need to be another pastor, a staff member, another member from the church, my wife Leah. Someone would need to be present in that meeting. And if you're in a situation where that is absolutely not a possibility, the best thing to do is to not put yourself in a private position. If you're meeting someone in an office, leave the door open. Make sure that it is not private because that's how adultery begins. That's how purity is made impure. This doesn't mean as well that a pastor can only minister to men and that he can't give any counseling to women. It means that the way he ministers to a young woman is as his sister. There are things that a brother should not be talking to his sister about just as For a pastor, there are things that he should not be speaking to a young woman about in private. And I think it's instructive as well that when it comes to things like how a young woman should love her husband, how a young woman should love and raise her children, how she is to pursue purity, deeply personal matters, things related to marriage and the family and sexuality, these deeply personal matters are things that Paul says older women should teach. He says in Titus chapter 2, verses 3-5, to older women are to teach what is good and so train, train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the Word of God may not be reviled. This is one of the reasons why women's ministry within the local church is so vital. Not only should women's ministry model good works and charity, Not only should it model godliness and godly service to the body of Christ and to the community, but any women's ministry must be profoundly and deeply saturated in the Gospel of Christ. Women in the church, and especially older women, are called to cultivate a robust understanding of the doctrines of the faith because it is only by a deeply rooted knowledge of the faith that they are able to fulfill their calling to teach 
and to model for others, for especially for younger women, a gospel-centered life and a gospel-centered home. Make no mistake, friends, women's ministry is vital because it addresses in particular some of the most deeply personal matters among women within the church. And so Paul teaches us how we relate to one another as family members in the family of God, as fathers, brothers, mothers, and sisters. But then he turns to how we relate to our own blood relatives in the context of the church and the gospel. In verses 3 to 8, he takes up the subject of widows in the church. As I said before, the subject runs all the way to verse 16, so widows in particular we'll look at in more detail next week. But in these first several verses, Paul stresses that before the church begins to support and care for widows, it is the obligation of the widow's family to take up that calling. He says, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. And then in verse 8, he warns, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now this is, this is no exaggeration on the part of the Apostle Paul. There's no over-exaggeration. In the ancient Roman world, people believed that it was right to take care of their elderly, widowed parents. Philosophers taught this. The laws enforced this. Culture embraced this. And so very literally, if a Christian rejected this obligation, it made them indeed worse than the surrounding culture they lived in. The logic of this obligation is very simple. Your parents spent 15 to 20 years raising you. Perhaps even in our own day, 15 to 30 to 35 years raising you. They fed you. They clothed you. They taught you. And for around two decades, you were completely dependent upon them. And now that they've gotten older and don't have the means to take care of themselves, you make a return. You take care of them. Now, unlike ancient societies and even many modern societies today, our society has a system of social security and retirement that allows older generations to support themselves for a longer period of time. But the principle is still the same. The principle still holds. When your relatives are no longer able to care for themselves, the gospel, the gospel calls you to care for them. And this is why I say the gospel is what calls us to this. Paul says that this is pleasing to God. To make a return to your parents is pleasing to God. And it's not only pleasing to God because it's obedient to His commands, it's pleasing to God because God Himself reveals that He is a God who cares for the orphans and the widows. This is who He is. 
Himself. And we are to be image bearers of God. And this revelation that He cares for widows is perhaps seen best through the Son of God. Jesus, of course, was crucified on a cross. Not unwillingly, but willingly. He gave Himself up willingly to die on behalf of sinners. And it was for this very reason that He came into the world to accomplish what we could not accomplish ourselves. A life of perfect obedience. A life of perfect law-keeping. And also to bear what we could never endure. The judgment of God. The wrath of God against us because of our sin. And He bore that punishment for us on a cross with Roman soldiers mocking Him, deriding Him, even casting lots for His clothes. And in the account that John gives us in his Gospel, we read this in verse 28 of chapter 19 of the crucifixion. He writes, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. And then shortly after, He said, it is finished. Bowed His head and gave up His Spirit. Knowing that all was now finished. That's what John writes. There was one final work that Jesus had to do before He gave up His Spirit. One last thing to complete all of His works. Everything He had done. And we read of that final work in just the immediately preceding verses. Jesus was hanging on the cross and before Him was standing His mother and Mary Magdalene and His mother's sister as well as John. And he saw his mother, and he looked at her, and he said to her, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to John, John, behold your mother. And John tells us that from that hour, from that moment, John took her to live in his own home. Now we don't know what happened to Joseph. Traditionally, it's been believed that at some point in Jesus' life, Joseph died. So his mother was widowed. He had brothers, no doubt. He had brothers. But before he died, his last work, Jesus' last work, the work that brought all other works to their end, was to make sure that his mother was taken care of by His most beloved disciple. He loved His mother. She cared for Him. She raised Him. She worried about Him. She prayed for Him. She rejoiced in God over Him. She rejoiced in God at the announcement that He was given to her. 
And now, Jesus, on a cross, suffering in agony, with His final work, made her His last obligation and made a return for her. Making sure that she would be taken care of by His most beloved disciple. Friends, this is what the Gospel calls us to do. To love our family and to take care of them. It calls us to love the people of God as our own family and to love our family by blood until their final days. We live in a culture where the family, the family unit, is becoming increasingly eroded and redefined and distorted. And because of that, there is going to be much brokenness and pain and suffering and consequences because of broken families. God has designed the family in a specific way and when it is broken, bad consequences follow. Friends, our call as the church is to model within the body of Christ what a family should look like. So that when the refugees of the sexual revolution enter into these walls, they have a model to look at and to learn from and to see for themselves so that redemption and restoration in their own lives might be brought to completion. That is our call. That is our gospel task. Well, would you pray with me and ask the Lord to impress these things upon Father, we thank You that You have given us Your Son to be our King, to be our Lord, and to be our brother with whom we are now co-heirs of the Kingdom of God. And we thank You, Lord, that we can address You as our own Father and we Your children. Lord, we pray that You would help us, help our stony and hardened hearts to be receptive to the Gospel Help us to open up our hearts to others. That we might treat one another within this household as a family. As brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. Where there is no bickering. Where there is no quarreling. But there is love and peace and harmony. Father, we pray that You would do this for us by Your Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name.